0: Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief of Interfish Media, and I'm joined today by John Fiorillo, Executive Editor and Senior Business Analyst, Kim Tran. Another busy, crazy week for seafood. Uh, there's so much to talk about, so much to hit on, but as usual, we only have a limited amount of time, so... Uh, we're going to drill down on a couple of things. Um, one of them is a commentary that John penned uh, in looking at uh, at uh, the South by Southwest event, uh, which for those of you that don't know is kind of, I would say, kind of the premier uh, media and entertainment and um, sort of innovation conference. I don't know if I'm describing it completely well, but... Um, it's in Austin, Texas, uh, typically held in person annually, and celebrities go. Um, it's, it's really a place to see and be seen. Um, it's kind of where influencers gather, and, uh, and so it's, uh, it's a place where y- you want to seat at that table. Now, um, the organizer that, organizers of that event have uh, uh, put together an aquaculture panel. They've done that in the past. Um, I believe it was two years ago, right, John? And uh, and they're putting another one together. Uh, and they're doing it digitally this year. And, um, you know, it, it was interesting. And, and, John, your commentary sparked some interesting discussions that, that we thought would be uh, worthy of talking about as a subject this week because it brings up some really interesting questions about how the industry communicates, um, especially in this new world of, of social media and, and in this new... Um, kind of realm of sustainable food systems. I mean, do you think that the way the industry has communicated about aquaculture in the past needs to change um, going
1: forward? Yes and no, I suppose. Um, you know, the, uh, what I was saying in the column was, I just think there are um, lifelong, if you will, or, you um, You know, longtime aquaculture executives who have put their entire life into this industry, built it from the ground up, uh, made it extremely successful. I think those are the people that should be on a panel talking about how aquaculture fits into climate change, feeding people the future, those types of things. Those people to me, have earned the right to talk about that in in any panel whatsoever. The South by Southwest panel, uh, apparently, celebrity is more important to be on a panel than necessarily your depth of knowledge. Okay, i'll I'll accept that. Uh, I guess that's. You referenced, you know, is that the new way to communicate, to use influencers and things like that? Okay, um, sure, I guess. I, I don't think myself that it, it's, the, it's the right way necessarily, but, um, you know, there's plenty of people who disagree with me, as I found out today, and who think um, influencers, uh, such as the ones that are on the panel are the best way or you know, a good way for the industry to tell its story and fix any misperceptions about it. I will say, I think the people who didn't like what I wrote seem to feel that the perception of aquaculture of the industry is in bad shape. I don't feel that way. I, I, I mean... I'm fully aware of all the people who don't like aquaculture and the protests and all that. But my window's long enough that I remember how bad it used to be. And I think it's much better today than it was. Um, I think the, the protests and things, I I think they're a lot smaller, a lot more local, those types of things. But nevertheless, um, you know, people, people didn't necessarily... Uh, agree with me. And that's great. That's why we have debates, you know? So, anywho.
0: That's always the goal of our commentaries is that, you know, if you get 50% uh, love letters and 50% hate letters, well, you kind of hit that sweet spot. So, um, no, but, you know, I, I, what I found interesting about it and interesting in some of the discussions on social media and some of the emails that we've gotten from from readers and people outside the industry as well is, you know, I do think you're right, John. I think there's been an evolution where I think there there um, there's downstream marketing, and there's influencing. There is uh, getting consumers to purchase your product, um, and tying that to um, to the attributes, whether it's taste, um, sustainability, obviously is important, origin traceability, etc. Now, I think there's a bigger case to be made. And I, this is what I took away when I read your column was, I think there's a, a case to be made that we need to start looking at aquaculture, um, as again, as part of this sustainable food system, this, um, this, uh, important part of a circular economy. It can really play a, a huge role in that. Um, and really, maybe getting some of these uh, people that have some of the science on their mind, um, and I think you were very careful, and and uh, and I, I know you meant it, and and I'll say the same thing. Um, not a thing in the world wrong with the the panelists or the the uh, their their own areas of expertise. To me, it was. Not just South by Southwest. This is a. This is we've seen this all over in in all kinds of major events that are put on by major publications that are, you know, um, UN FAO type events. Um, there is always thought leaders missing, and um, I think the innovation that is happening in aquaculture, in particular, you could say fisheries as well. But aquaculture in particular, the innovation that is happening there and, uh, and, and the, the people that are putting the time, effort, and research into making it um, sustainable and efficient um, is really amazing. And, and I mean, I know we're all seafood nerds, so consider the source. But um, I just in my layman's conversations with people, when I start talking about aquaculture, that discussion of, oh, isn't aquaculture bad? I found that actually changing um, because, you know, I think people are smart enough to, to understand and appreciate um, science and technology. Um, and when you start looking at um, and describing how fish will be produced in the future, how it could play an important role of, uh, you know, together with, let's say, integrating it with, I don't know, offshore floating wind or... Subsea aquaculture, or all these different ways that um, it can be done and will be done uh, in the future, land-based salmon, for example, land-based aquaculture. It the, the, there's this different story to tell than uh, wild versus wild versus farmed. Um, I, I'm just going to ask you, Kim. Um, you're younger, much younger than John and I and um and you've got i think even younger sisters right they're they're still um yeah. right so
2: i have siblings and cousins in their 20s
0: okay so then you're going to be uh you're going to be our, our resident speaking for the young people person um so i mean how do you think like in an event like south by southwest or just in general what do you think young people um are responding to more is it a matter of the industry needing to get kim kardashian to say aquaculture's great or you know should should um should people be making a more intellectual appeal or a more sort of uh appeal towards um uh, you know towards science and technology and progress
2: well i mean I, i'll bring up something that john mentioned where he said you know, all cultures, you know, compared to what it was, it's much better today. But that's the thing with these young people today, myself included, we don't remember what it used to be like. So our comparison is, you know, what we see today. Um, and honestly, with the younger generations, it's as we saw with what happened with GameStop, um, social media is where they go that's if you need them to know something you have to go to the platforms that they're on whether it's reddit snapchat or tiktok um and it's going to be big name influencers or food bloggers um those who have made it big on instagram you're this is a generation where those names are carry more weight than the CEO of, of one of the big five salmon farming companies. So I do think, for that in that case, for the younger generation, social media is um, has a bigger impact.
0: So, but but let me let me um, kind of counter that a bit, or or, or uh, just ask you a, a question about that. Um, I think one of your sisters doesn't she work for like SpaceX or something, right?
2: Uh, yeah, so she she actually works um, as a, yeah, she actually builds <laughs> satellites and rockets um, and things like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so for sure, the younger generations, they are, I don't remember where I saw the survey, but they're going to be more, they're just more, in general, educated, they're more racially diverse, they care more about politics and sustainability and science. So those things do appeal to them a lot more than, um, I guess, older generations or even the older millennials.
0: Yeah, and I the, I, I found that same thing too, um, and that's why I was curious about your first point because I do think there's kind of a misperception that millennials and is it Gen Z is next? I guess Gen Y. I don't know, but anyway, millennials <laughs> and below. Um, so there, there's kind of a perception that almost like they're dumb that, that, that if, if like, you know, if, uh, if somebody uh, on social media says something that they'll all go out and do it. And I think GameStop, I don't think that's quite what, what happened. I mean, I guess that's a whole nother thing. It was, it was, um, maybe shows the power of social media, the power of, um, you know, of, of an idea to spread across social media, but, I, I don't know i I feel like there is a misperception um maybe on the part of my generation um and and older, that um social media is um kind of the only way to get a a point across, um meaning that you almost have to sneak in a marketing message,
2: yeah, I mean, to be honest, i mean it's it's hard to tell because uh, even among between my siblings, they're just so different in terms of how they, um, go about social media. I've got one sister who gets all of her news, all of it from Snapchat. She follows NBC and, um, other news channels on there. I haven't, my other one, she actually has sworn off for years now, social media. So she is only, I believe only on Twitter. She. Like doesn't have um, any of the other platforms, so it's very interesting how different it is. The spectrum in terms of how these younger generations approach social media.
1: Well, you know, I will say one thing, um, and this isn't necessarily about social media, but when when you look at the South by Southwest, some of those conferences, I mean, there was there's a ton of gee whiz science elements to it like there's one about 3d printing rockets or something crazy like that i i assume that's steeped in science that it's a it's something to expose people to you know some really significant advances in science well that happened that's happening in aquaculture just just the same i mean if you go look at some of those experimental farms in Norway and some of the genetics being done on aquaculture. This is G whiz science. This is next level science. So my point is I just came off as everybody else did four years of a dearth of science in the United States. We had an absolute absolute clown at the top who did not believe in science. Well I do believe in science, and that, uh, my feeling is at a conference like South by Southwest, it would be really cool to have science, a depth of science about aquaculture exposed rather than – and again, no disrespect to any of the panelists. I, I know it's come off that way to some people. I, it's not what I do. I'm not trying to disrespect them. I just think – there's, there's depth to this conversation. And I'm a proponent of the aquaculture industry has a lot of wonderful things when it comes to science and what they're doing. And I would like to see that depth of conversation at a conference.
2: Yeah, especially for something that takes place in Austin, where I I believe it was dubbed like Silicon Hills, because of its just how much the tech industry has grown over down there in te- Austin, Texas.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's, I think you're, you're both really onto something here and that's that I think that people now are more comfortable with technology being part of the food system. And in fact, I think that transparency of where your food come, comes from, I think a big part of it is understanding how it's produced. And so I, I think that there, there's an argument that, argument to be made that, wait a minute, instead of kind of hiding the production system, instead of working on the attributes of the, the fish and working your way back, um, which there, there's, there's merit in that. And I think that's more of a when you're marketing a product to a consumer. But when you're kind of quote unquote, marketing the industry or trying to explain the industry, I think there is a massive, massive appreciation, understanding, and desire to see technology taking a role in food production, because I think people understand, okay, wait a minute, this is going to make it more efficient, it's going to make it more sustainable, and bringing technology into the food system is a positive thing, not a negative thing, Um I think we see this in the change in how GM salmon is viewed, for example. That's been a radical shift, a radical shift just in, in my 20 years covering this sector. And I think just in general, the kinds of food systems that um, aquaculture can fit into, I mean, let's look at the, the money that's coming into the aquaculture sector right now. I mean, where's it coming? You know, Think about companies like Cuna Del Mar, think about S2G Ventures. Um, Think about all these uh, impact VC funds, uh, all these company venture funds. What are they all about? They're all about technology. They're all about making the food supply more sustainable. And the money behind it is typically, or a lot of it is high net worth individuals that have a sustainable mission. And so you're seeing aquaculture be on the menu. Um, so to speak, of these impact funds, um, these smaller up and coming uh, aquatech tech uh, companies, they are now on the radar of all these sustainable investors. So it, it's, you know, I, I think that there's no reason to hide the way aquaculture is produced. Um, and in fact, I think it should be highlighted more because there are still misperceptions about how fish are fed. I mean, and, and that's um, by demonstrating and showing some of this technology, you can quickly put, put to rest some of the ideas about how the, the sector operates.
1: What I worry about on a panel, for example, like this one is, so let's just say farm salmon because the two of the people on there are, are involved in salmon. We're going, uh, the message that may emerge, and I'm not saying it will, but I'm betting it might, uh, that may emerge is that one type of salmon raised one type of way by one type of company or group or people or whatever is better than salmon raised another way. I'm afraid that will be the the message. One of the messages that emerges from this, and frankly, I don't think that's what we should be sending out there that, you know, I mean, it's fine if you're a company and you're selling your product and you want to do that on your own, That that's, I got no problem with that. Believe me, I know all about marketing. But I don't think that's the message that a conference like this needs to provide to, you know, the masses, so to speak.
0: Sustainability is important. It's a message that needs to be hammered on. But I do think there is a, a real case to be made here to talk about the technology um, and and, uh, and and see how the consumers react to that. Um, people still eat meat. People still eat beef. Um, and uh, I would guess... I mean, I'm going to go out on a, on a limb here, but I would guess most people could pretty easily stand there, watch a salmon being... Um, uh, taken out of a net pen, um, processed, and turned into a filet, I think they could do that with a, a better stomach than watching uh, a cow get processed, right, or a pig. Um, so that's something right there. Um, just, I'm not saying that's something that should be highlighted all the time in marketing to consumers, but I think, like you said, uh, Kim, that when, uh, when you're talking to a crowd that is tech-savvy that is looking for progressive ideas,:
2: I think that transparency will work in their favor. just I mean, I, I know my younger siblings and cousins. I know like if they know how something's done, like beginning to end, doesn't matter how technical you want to get, um, they'll eat it all up, and then they'll trust it afterwards because they've seen the process, they know the technology behind it. Um, That's why they're more open to things such as um, the GM salmon or GMO items if they know if there's enough transparency behind it. And these younger generations, they are gravitating more toward fish only diets or even plant-based, just further away from beef and chicken.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah but this, this generation, too, is this, uh, the, the you know, the younger generation uh, is much more tech savvy, as, as you guys just mentioned. So, uh, you know, what would I like to see there? I'd like to see, like, the the fact that we have facial recognition for salmon in a salmon pen, where we can actually use that technology to recognize one salmon from another
0: brought to you by google brought to you by google
1: so when i'm talking about depth of discussion i'm talking about things like this i think that would be fascinating to anybody i don't care if they're millennials boomers or what but will that get will that be discussed during the thing i mean my sense is no but you know, I, I I think that's my fundamental you know concern here.
0: I think it was really thought provoking, John, and I I think it's um you know it's it's one of these things too where the industry's playing playing catch up on um on how to communicate. I think, and and it it's getting there. I think um, on the downstream marketing side. Um, but I, there, there's a whole nother world out there that is going to shape policy and it's those people that need to be, uh, that need to be reached out to. And I think that's, it, it's not necessarily the young generation that cares about what happens at South by Southwest. I think more important than that, it's policymakers. It's, um, people that are CEOs at tech companies. Um, I think Stacey Abrams is one of the headliners, uh, former candidate for uh governor of, of uh of Georgia. So I think they're and, and a you know rising star in the Democratic Party. Um I, I it's those types of people. Um Twitter CEO's been there, uh, Barack Obama. You know, you can kind of get the sense of who the audience is that's being spoken to. You could say, well maybe it's a, a liberal audience. Um not necessarily, you know. It seems like you, like you said, John, there is this G-Wiz element of South by Southwest that you're going to come out with these ideas, um, and step away, and and um, you know, and and take them back and, and um, spread them through your through your company and your network. And so, um, you know, it's one event; it's not the event. But uh, but I think you picked up on a general trend, John, that that we are seeing this, um, you know, in, in many other big venues. And I like one thing that you you kind of finished on and that is that it's not the fault of the panelists that are going to be speaking. I'm sure they'll do a great job. It's not even the fault of South by Southwest because what do they know? They know nothing. And sorry any South by Southwest people that are listening. But, you know, they don't. They don't. They don't. And they're not supposed to. I don't know anything about, you know, the overwhelming majority of what is going to be discussed at South by Southwest. Now, but, but what I think, uh, what I think the, the missing element here is the industry itself. I don't know the solution, but I do think that um, the industry has really made strides on transparency. But it's an open question you asked, and that is, how then do you get the thought leaders on those stages? How do you get the best and brightest of the industry up on those stages? You know, and and that's, that's, like you said, John, it's not easy to, to do that. Um, but there's a, a level of engagement that needs to happen to get the industry, uh, the really, really sharpest uh, people in this industry, to get them engaged in these discussions, because it will shape policy. It will determine whether or not there is a viable aquaculture industry moving forward. These things can seem small. But if you're not at some of these high-level la di-da panels, all of a sudden these policies can come down and it can wipe out an entire industry if you are not a part of that discussion. Um so it, it's not a small thing, but um but but anyway, I I'm really curious to hear other thoughts rolling in. Um you guys know where to get us out there, so uh drop a line and uh and let us know what you think. Um, And certainly uh, plenty of readers have been letting John know what they think, which has been a lot of fun. Um, So let's switch gears. Let's talk a bit about the post-COVID retail and food service environment. Um, This has been an interesting week because it's been um, kind of the start of the National Fisheries Institute's um, Global Seafood Marketing Conference, which is an annual conference held by... Uh, NFI, which represents the North American seafood industry. Uh, it's always a very interesting discussions because they, they bring interesting outside experts in to, to discuss um, what's happening in, in the sector on the, the retail and food service side and consumer trends. Um, always enjoyable. And this week, trends emerged that we kind of knew about. We didn't necessarily um, have all the numbers to them. But uh, but Kim, um, you are uh, in charge of our business intelligence division. You've been doing a lot of research on this as well uh, and just put out a report on um, uh, selling seafood in a post-COVID environment. And, and I'm just curious to, to look at a couple of these trends. I think the, the one that, that, was, that has clearly stood out and that was most highlighted this week that... Um, really was a, a a big hit with our readers clearly because people wanted to know about it was the frozen segment so uh, just from your viewpoint i mean how how much do you think this has uh, how much do you think that, that the the covid um, pandemic has changed the way people are going to shop long term what were what were the experts that you talked to telling us about where things are going to go
2: one of the overarching themes that i've when I was talking to everyone in the industry was that no matter what, this is, although it's a hard, hard period for seafood, it long-term it's going to benefit everyone just because the amount of new consumers coming into the seafood space through retail has increased so much. And one being frozen seafood, people are looking for things with long shelf lives and frozen takes care of that. People are looking to stock up more freezers are being purchased as well. Um, Obviously. And one of the ongoing messages from all of these people were once you learn how to buy it, cook it, prepare it, eat it, it really um, overcomes that Big hurdle that seafood has always had, which is people are just scared because they don't know how to use it, they don't know how to cook it, um, and that this is helping with that, with that quite a bit.
0: It was interesting, the you know some of the the latest IRI data, um, looking back through twenty twenty um, to kind of put a an exclamation point on what you said, um, was that frozen seafood in the United States increased by. Thirty-five percent um, compared to the, the previous uh, previous years, um, and that is that is stunning. That is absolutely stunning. Um, and I, I, you know, you've seen this also in the UK. There's been record um, record levels of frozen sales in the in the UK as well, and happening across all, uh, several other countries. And, and so it's, you know, it does seem like this is something that, um, at the very least, I think the industry has a chance to capture it. But was there any, um, any sense of what the industry needs to do to to hold on to those frozen consumers? Because I think that's the big question is, okay, you've got a lot of people into the door. Now, how do you keep them there?
2: One interesting point that was brought up uh, by someone who I spoke to, he said that there's going to be one a new group of consumers that emerge post-COVID, which are those who are going to be economically struggling, those who have either lost their jobs or had to go on unemployment um, and or lost their business, things like that, and because of that, he said that there's going to be a bigger need for value packs, large amounts of frozen seafood packages at bulk stores. Um, he s- predicts that that will be some uh, something that will definitely increase in the coming years. And um, I don't know if that answers your question. With um, the post-COVID consumer and how to hold on to them.
0: No, I think it does. I mean, I I, I think that's that's um, gonna be interesting. Is that I, I'm always fascinated by um, seafood packaging and all the thought that goes into it because <laughs> you just never know why one thing's gonna take off versus another. Um, but that's interesting because I do I do see there there does seem to be. Um, it seems to be more kind of bulk packages being launched at at standard retail not just your big box your costcos or whatever um and so i wonder if if that's um kind of in response to that to that trend but um john any thoughts with the 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 people that you talk to um what are they saying about maintaining that that customer group post covid i mean is it something that'll just naturally stay, or are these frozen consumers, they need to be kind of cultivated and, and taken care of? It's certainly not going to stay
1: at the levels that we saw during the peak of COVID and even today. It, it, you can already see there was some data um, that shows, showing, you know, it's lev- leveled off both for shelf stable and frozen, but it's leveled off at a much higher level than it, than it had been. So, um, if it stays there, that that's great. Uh, there's been a net gain, but we got to keep in mind that, you know, someday, although none of us can see it at the moment, I don't think someday restaurants are going to reopen, and you're going to go back to restaurants and feel safe and eat, and that's going to suck a lot of energy out of retail, um, just because, you know, people like to go out to eat. Seafood is one of the things they like to go out to restaurants for. Um, But, you know, that's okay, because it's going to kind of rebalance things a little bit. But I I agree with Kim, I I think, you know, there are new customers that have entered and will stay in the retail side of the business. And um, there certainly has been a lot of focus on the supply side, uh, for how to, how to serve these new customers. So, um, you know how much of it will stay? It's it's hard to say, but I, I'm pretty sure you know these are these are permanent gains um, at at some level, anyways.
0: So Kim, talk about the um, the the shelf stable uh, market. Um, you, you know canned tuna um, in particular, but other other um, canned products, canned salmon as well, but but canned tuna in particular, shelf stable and. Pouched uh, tuna, etc., uh, also had kind of its golden era over the past twelve months. Um, so, tell us kind of what the the experts that you talk to, what do they see for that category? Is that going to be taking a different, um, you know, a, a different sort of path than the frozen um, segment has gone?
2: Well, with canned, I mean, obviously that. Um, it spiked up enormously initially by in, I believe it was like mid-March around that time. And it has since trickled off, um, fell back down closer to pre-pandemic times. Now part of that is because once you buy it, it's on your shelf. You're not going to need to restock up on it, um, anytime soon, unless you're going to go through it quickly. Um. But uh, there hasn't been too much in terms of um, new strategies. I mean, a lot of these companies, they pulled back on all the different flavors and various um, creative products that they had out there for pouched and canned during COVID. Um, So perhaps that can see a rebound and capture some more sales going forward. But uh, yeah, that one came out pretty strong out of the gates, um, but it hasn't, uh, I don't feel like it's kept up as strongly as frozen in the, in the later months of 2020.
1: Yeah. And that's an interesting point because, uh, you know, a lot of both on the supply side and on the retail side, a lot of the SKUs, a lot of the products have been scaled back, um, instead of, you know, uh, 12 flavors of tuna. You know, uh, maybe there's six now, and and that had to be done initially just because to keep up and and fill orders, the factories, you know, had fewer people in them, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I I kind of think that might stay. I think this day and age of just coming out with a new flavor of something all the time. I, I, I don't know. I, that may be a casualty of, of all this. Uh, and it might be just a, a concentration on those uh, products that, that do well rather than trying to get outside that core group and, you know, always offer something, something new and different depending what the trend is. I, I don't know. I, I'm watching that closely.
0: So let's pivot to food service a little bit and um, and and some of the um, some of the research that that uh, that you did there. Um, you know the, the the NFI conference this week uh, had buyers from uh, Walt Disney, Bloomin Brands, uh, U.S. Foods, and and some others, I believe. And you know the the picture wasn't that wasn't maybe as bad as it could have been, but. It's hard to know um, how much of that is um, is sort of whistling in the dark, and how much is for real, um, because nobody knows. You know, we're we're all doing our best to try to figure out what what's going to happen, and, and none of us know, of course. Um, but Kim, what were what were some of the food service experts and and, uh, um, and and executives in the seafood sector? What was their take, and how are they planning their businesses? Um, in 2021 and beyond um for for that new reality
2: one of the data one of the, the surveys that's out there that collected data um it actually said that seafood was the number two item that consumers missed the most from restaurants and actually sushi made it into the top 10 as well um so i it's not a surprise that seafood was hurt, and especially with so much seafood relying on uh, fine dining, sit, uh, full-service restaurants rather than QSR. Um, but I do think that's one of the long-term benefits to COVID, and a lot of these uh, restaurant food service operators and experts, they were saying how the advances that were made visually um, and through tech, it was as if you took five years worth of technology advancement and (laughs) crammed it into a couple of months Uh and it made them kind of rethink, you know, how they could be more competitive against QSR and um, the bigger chains who had technology and apps and websites in place already
0: this reminds me of um, if you, if you both will remember um, we did a, uh, a webinar shortly after kind of the big lockdowns. I think maybe it was April or May, something around there. Um, and I remember uh, Frank Dulcich, who's the CEO of Pacific seafood group mentioning, and, and again, this had only been a few weeks, you know, or a, a month or two tops. And, just him saying how radically um, it had changed the way his company was set up to and, and in the way that um, digitalization had had, like you said, Cam, you described it in a great way that that five years of technology was crammed into a few months, you know. Um, and, and so I, I think that that uh, that revolution in technology and how companies manage inventory and how sales are done. Um, that seems like that's been just been going like a rocket. Now, um, e-commerce sales. Um, John, uh, tell us about what we can expect on the e-commerce side of things coming, uh, coming ahead in 2021 and beyond. It seems like everybody's, um, everyone at the website has uh, kind of opened up an e-commerce platform, but is there enough coming from e-commerce? Is it enough? Uh, is it moving fast enough for seafood companies to really kind of pivot and shift so much um, to e-commerce? Is it sort of kind of a, a nice to have versus a need to have?
1: I think, I think Kim's point about all this getting shoved into such an accelerated pace um, is important because not only on the supply side have the, you know, suppliers of seafood had to, to do this and learn and really implement systems, but more importantly on the on the retail side, all the all of these retailers had you know um, uh, online ordering and things like that to some degree, but nothing to the level that they have now. So when when you look at like you know the digital aspect of it, I think a lot of what happens at retail post COVID. Uh, will tell us where things are. Because if if consumers have fundamentally changed and don't really want to go to the grocery store and have less of a problem ordering it and then just picking it up or having it delivered, that's a pretty significant shift. And seafood will have to, you know, uh, fit into that. It probably does fit into it pretty well from the frozen shelf stable point of view. Fresh is a little bit more of a challenge. But that's what I would watch to see um you know, the resilience of of this uh, digital revolution as far as um food delivery and things like that
0: yeah kim, Kim, just um your thoughts on that too, and that that e commerce um delivery, um what are seafood companies yeah. doing? What are they going to need to do to prep for that?
2: Yeah, I much like how I mentioned earlier about home cooking with seafood. That's kind of the same with digital use in consumers, once a consumer has downloaded DoorDash for the first time and learned how to use it or figured out, you know, how curbside works, they're not going to unlearn that. And uh, that's definitely been something that um, has changed a lot for whether you're a retailer or food service um, and how you, how you have to address your consumers now that they're more on these apps and e-commerce sites. Um I do know I one restaurant owner who I spoke to, he owned several seafood uh restaurant chains and he talked about uh he pared down his men takeout menu so that it would only be species that traveled well. Even if a customer ordered something that wasn't on that menu, he would politely decline and explain why. But uh such as crab or Salmon, things with high fat content um, in in only certain formats will he allow on his takeout menu. Um, So that's definitely been a a difference in terms of how food service and retail has had to pivot to accommodate to these people who are this new consumer who are looking to go through e-commerce channels or curbside or other untraditional means of getting their seafood.
0: What does that mean, um, John? And maybe you were just going to jump in on this, but I, I'm just curious what it means for, in terms of the types of seafood that are going to succeed or not succeed in this new environment.
1: I don't necessarily <laughs> think they'll be vastly different from the ones that have been succeeding. To be honest with you, um, you know, travel well is is a debatable thing right now. And I heard during NFI that some some uh, operators have uh, think they've cracked the code and that seafood travels well and some others maybe not so much but um, I, I I'm not sure that there's going to be a surprise as far as wh- which species you know uh, do well going forward I think one thing that's important to note though is that you know the entire in- I think we've lost maybe a hundred thousand restaurants, and most of those are, you know, small operators, maybe single proprietors, or you know, very small number of units. As part of a chain, uh, that's got to be rebuilt, and that will not happen overnight. Uh, that's going to take, by one estimation, Kim. I can't remember who who gave us the information, but you know, four to five years to to rebuild to pre COVID levels if it gets there at all. So, um, you know, the, on the food service side, this is going to be a long, longer slog. And, um, it's, it's going to take a little, it's going to take a little time.
0: Yeah. Companies have a lot to learn and there's a, a lot of unknowns out there. So, um, yeah. Um, great report. So why don't we leave it there? Uh, you know where to get us. We are, uh, on introfish.com Hey, uh, quick plugs, Um, we launched a new feature this week for subscribers called Alerts. Uh, We're very excited about this, this allows you to track particular topics, companies, executives, you can even follow reporters, so if you liked what Kim or John had to say, you can can get uh, an alert anytime. Uh, that they uh, publish a story. If you're an Introfish subscriber and you haven't done it yet, um, give it a try because it's, uh, it's, really, um, it's a really cool feature. Um, secondly, on February 23rd, we have our first digital event of the year it's our Sustainable Shrimp Forum. I'm very excited, our colleague Rachel Mutter will be moderating that event. We're going to have some great speakers there. Um, Giving the keynote is going to be Gorya Nikolic from Rabobank. He's going to be giving a forecast of shrimp supply, talking about some of the trends that will impact the sector. Um, Always, always interesting uh, when he presents his research. So we're really, um, really excited he's going to be joining us. So don't miss out. You can register on intrafishevents.com. we look forward to talking to you next week, folks.